to all be here today. We welcome you to the weekly gathering of God's family, a special, special time. It's not just coming to church every Sunday. This is a special gathering of God's people, a powerful gathering, one that sends us out and makes us stronger on the inside with the Spirit. So we're excited to be here today. 
Happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. We celebrate your impact on all of us today, as well as God's example of being a father to us. We start with our worship with uh, Psalm 103. It says, as a father, as the Lord, what is it? As the Lord has compassion on his children. It's like a father, right? I don't remember the verse. You know it. I hope you do, right? Okay. It's one of those things. It's a Sunday morning. So anyway, as the Lord has compassion on his children, it's just like a father has compassion on his. And that's how he, he serves us. And so we are so grateful to be here this morning. We celebrate that God is our help and our shield and our uh, strength and our song this morning. So let's stand and sing together. <laughs>
love that. This is the day the Lord has made. One of the reasons we're grateful to him today is for his grace and his mercy for us. So we're going to read our confession prayer. It all comes from different psalms this morning as a responsive reading. So let's stand and we'll confess to the Lord together. Confess our name. Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest on us, O Lord. Even as we put our hope in you. Let's sing, here is love. Oh, 
yourselves at your mercy. It was a thought I came to. I, I imagine in my mind the, the abject humility of saying, Your Honor, we throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. And we do that every time we confess our sins because he is faithful and just to us. And so this song pictures a joyous encounter, perhaps like the prodigal son returning home, where instead of judgment and harsh discipline, it's a place of joy because it's a place of cleansing. Would you sing it with us? Yeah. 
morning, church family. Uh, so I have a really fun update and a celebration this morning for us. So if you remember uh, last week, if you were here in person or tuned in online, uh, we heard from one of our longtime missionaries who has ministered in, in Russia and Ukraine and, and surrounding nations, and he shared with us what our brothers and sisters in Christ and the local church um, has been doing in the midst uh, of the current war. And um, it's really incredible to see that in the midst of devastation, right, God's people are, are stepping up. We heard of churches who had uh, buildings that might have been destroyed but said, well, we're meeting in the open air. Or uh, one Bible church um, that, that uh, the kitchen was left. They said, well, God has for us to be a soup kitchen, a safe haven, a place to receive a, a, a hot meal uh, for so many refugees are in transit. And so church, we, we just know uh, those stories are going to keep flooding into us from our, our 16 missionaries and partners in that region. And so following that update, uh, we invited you to a special offering uh, across all campuses, our whole church family to give, and, and the offering was just open for three days, Sunday morning through Tuesday night. And so what I want to do today is celebrate with you, um, because I want us to celebrate that generosity really builds on itself. You ever experienced that happen? Right? We could call it pay it forward, or um, uh, the Bible would say it's, it's uh, cheerful or it's joyful when it's something that we do together, right? And so uh, I, as I watched this offering come in all week, I kept thinking of the passage in Scripture of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. And here the Apostle Paul is, is exhorting churches in their, their generosity to what God is doing. And he said, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And so are you ready for um, kind of the final numbers of what came in last week? because this blew me away. I'm not sure you're ready. I wasn't. So I want us to praise God together that just over those three days, above and beyond to these missionaries we already support, um, our church family, you all, um, cheerfully and joyfully gave a total of So church, I think that amount is incredible in itself, and this will make, as we heard, a huge difference to our partners. As we know, these $50 eye care packages will feed a family in transit, a, a, a refugee family uh, of four for uh, a week, or support a seminary in Romania that has turned its dormitories into uh, a refugee welcome center, and, and beyond, um, and just above and beyond. And I also want to celebrate, I don't think it's any surprise that we talked about 400 churches that are ministering in this region, and from our church family, 402 unique households took part in this special giving. That's incredible. And so on behalf of our partners serving on the front lines, I want to say, and I hope you receive, a deep thank you this morning. In the midst of devastation and hardship, we know that our brothers and sisters in Christ and in Ukraine, Russia, surrounding nations are stepping up to care for the most vulnerable. 
They're living out Christ's reminder that we preached last week that you are the light of the world. And this is his church, right? We are part of this global church. And I'm seeing all the time that there is no disaster, no war, no circumstance that will stop the Lord of all nations from working in and through his church. Amen? Amen. So, I want to remind you in this celebration that our regular and faithful giving supports these missionaries, not just in special offerings like this, but year in and year out. So I want to invite you to just keep it up. Let's keep encouraging the, the joyful giving in one another, okay? Do you receive that? I'll quote Pastor Hannibal again. If you said yes, you need to give. Uh, but follow along, church, online, wheatonbible.org Ukraine. Those stories that we can securely share online and missionaries and partners, you can really uh, uh, kind of keep in, in touch with what God is doing there. Um, and if you want to set up recurring giving, you can do so at wheatonbible.org give. Um, leave a check or your offering on the way, on your way out of worship this morning, or mail it to um, the church. And as a last thank you, you may have seen, we have several Ukrainian members of our congregation who just wanted to offer a thank you to the whole church. So there are baked goods that I promise you, because I may or may not have sampled them this morning, that are amazing in the atrium right next to the free coffee. So please uh, grab one of those as a thank you on your way out today, okay? All right, let's pray together. Father, we, we come before you, and, and on the one hand, Father, burdened, burdened by knowing what uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the, midst of, in the midst of wars, Father, when your church is hard-pressed around the world, and on the other hand, Father, we rejoice with our fellow believers knowing that you are present, that you are stepping up, that you are ministering to your church, you are ministering in and through your church, Lord. And so, Father, we pray for these gifts that we're uh, going to be sending in the coming week to, to so many partners. Um, Father, we pray that these gifts would be an encouragement. Father, we pray that these gifts would be a reminder that uh, their global brothers and sisters are alongside them. Yes, financially, Father, but Father, we know um, so much more deeply in prayer. Father, in our shared uh, identity as ones who have been saved by you. And so, Lord, would you bless these gifts. And Father, we pray over this Father's Day for, for our fathers, those who have served as, as faithful presences in our lives. I think of our biological fathers, but Lord, I think of spiritual fathers, Lord, who have supported, who have exhorted, who um, have sought your heart for our families. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give um, our fathers, our generations of men in the church, continued faithfulness. Like we read about in Psalm 103, the Father who shows compassion, Lord, is the sign of your compassion. May we be sent out into the world as signs of your compassion, Lord. 
And so, Lord, for all of our summer outreaches, our students who are heading out on their go teams, neighborhood Bible clubs, families, for all of us, Lord, I pray that you would grow in us the identity as people sent by you as we live in in the Sermon on the Mount these weeks, Lord, as, as the light of the world. It's shining your light, not ours, Father. And Lord, for our church family, for all who are sick, we pray for your healing. For all who are lonely, Lord, bring your presence. Grow us, Lord, as we hear from your word. We're so grateful to gather together. It's in your most holy name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. Uh, in your Matthew journal, it will be verse, or pages 26 and 27. <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to her brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise in the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Familia. It is joyous to be with you again this morning. And for those of you who are joining us in the room and online, welcome. Uh, my name is Brent Sickle. I am one of the pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And I want to wish, uh, start by wishing all the fathers here today happy Father's Day. It is a, a celebration we get to have with our families, and I know I'm looking forward to that afterwards with my family as well. This morning we're continuing on in our series in Matthew, The King's People. And this week we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. And in this passage, Jesus explains how his people must have a new way of thinking. And so I want to start us off again by looking at the bookends of this passage starting in verse 17, and then we'll look at the last verse as well. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished Therefore, anyone who set aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." Wow, what a way to begin our morning. This morning, you must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. 
These men were were meticulous about obeying the law and the word of God. And here Jesus is saying that our righteousness needs to exceed theirs. More than that, every little part of the law must be lived out for those of us who wish to belong to the kingdom of heaven. Are we hearing Jesus right in this passage? Is is this really what he's asking us to do today? As I was preparing this lesson, I was reading, and I love history, and so I was reading uh, this article about the Sistine Chapel. This beautiful work of art by Michelangelo up on the ceiling of this chapel. In 1919, after a decade-long cleaning process, the Sistine Chapel ceiling was free at last of the latticework and scaffolding, allowing once again neck-craning visitors to look up and see the full expanse of Michelangelo's 16th century fresco. The colors were bold and bright, And for anyone whose memory was fixed on the old dusty vault, they were startled. But indeed, the colors that shone were now the originals. What people now see as they look at this fresco is the Renaissance masters intended them to see. This fresco is now purged of the dulling residue of candle smoke, incense, and dust that had accumulated over the years. What was funny, though, is when this cleaning process was done, the most common complaint was that the colors were too strong. But the preservers insisted these were the colors of the period. This is the way that the painting was meant to be seen This team had worked for 10 years to clean what Michelangelo took four years to paint. Similarly, here in Matthew chapter 5, we look at what Jesus is doing. Jesus does not add or raise the standard of what is right. Instead, he is restoring what God has always required in the law. Righteousness. Jesus, at the very end of the section, summarizes the level of righteousness that has been always required. Look at me with, at verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't you find that shocking? Jesus sums up the totality of this teaching this far simply by saying... Be perfect. I read this and I'm like, perfect? Come on, Jesus. You've just announced the kingdom of God has come. This is supposed to be good news for the poor and the meek. It's supposed to bless those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. You've built all of this up and now you pull the rug out from under our feet and say, be perfect. How is this good news to us? Today, 
Maybe you have a little bit of a, a Greek scholar background and you might be saying, Brent, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, it says be perfect there in the NIV, but a, a better translation might be to be complete or mature. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. I can't achieve perfection, but maybe I have a shot at completeness or maturity or whatever that means. Until we look at the rest of the verse that is given to us, we are to be perfect, complete, or mature. Therefore, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, complete, or mature. Complete as God is complete. Well, great. I think that's perfection, whichever way we try to look at it or parse it. And even so, echoes much of what the Old Testament says as God speaks to them in Leviticus chapter 11. Be holy because I am holy. So Jesus is saying, be perfect in righteousness as God is perfect in righteousness. The, the question remains for us this morning though. Is Jesus telling us to do something that is completely impossible. And what exactly is this perfect righteousness that Jesus is talking about? I want to address these questions today through the lens of a new worldview shift. A shift in the way we think about the perfect righteousness we are called to live out as the king's people here in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at it in three ways. First, the demand of righteousness. Second, the dynamics of righteousness. And third, the discipline of righteousness. The demand of righteousness, the dynamics of righteousness, the discipline of righteousness. Look with me first at the demand of righteousness. Jesus has set the bar of righteousness and illustrates this with six pattern statements here in Matthew 5. He uses this pattern of, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He is quoting statements that represent the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then he speaks of the perfect righteousness demanded by him. In doing so, he's constantly drawing a comparison between the external righteousness exhibited by the actions of the Pharisees and scribes and the internal righteousness Jesus demands, which deals with the attitudes of the heart, which all actions come from. Jesus is looking at the internal versus the external, the attitudes versus the actions. In verse 21, he begins... You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus is comparing here anger and murder. If murder is the effect, anger is the cause. You see, already in this first example, we see where Jesus is going. He is more focused on us growing. He's more focused on righteous fruit. I'm sorry, he's not focused as much on righteous fruit as he is on having righteous roots. What is the cause that's causing these actions? 
In verse 27, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, adultery is the effect. Lust is the cause. Verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, if divorce is the effect, unfaithfulness is the cause. Verse 33, again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. I tell you, do not swear on an oath at all. Verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus is reminding us again here, if the breaking of oaths is the effect, dishonesty is the cause. These last three, adultery, divorce, oaths, are all rooted in the lack of integrity of the heart. He gives us two more examples, starting in verse 38. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone who wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus here is talking about our response to people taking advantage of us. If revenge is the effect, then retaliation or a retaliative heart is the cause. In personal dealings with one another, where people take advantage of us or obligate us, our righteousness is not related to the external requirements, but to the internal attitude of our hearts. Jesus lastly ends of these examples in verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus once again is showing us if hatred is the effect, an unloving heart is the cause. Charles Price says it this way, the love of God is undiscriminating. And that love that expresses the righteousness required by Jesus is equally undiscriminating. It is with these examples and in this context that Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The criteria of our love, of both our attitude and our actions We cannot make any disclaimer based on circumstance or condition. It is determined by the exhibited character of who God is. Jesus' righteous demand is that the true righteous character of God would be seen in us from the inside out. Even with these examples, though, how is this perfect righteousness even possible? 
What does Jesus still mean that he fulfills the law? To understand what Jesus means by him fulfilling the law, we need to understand both the purpose of the law and the effect of the law as we look at the dynamics of righteousness. First is the purpose of the law. Why did God give these original Ten Commandments? Why did he choose ten? Why were these ten specific ones chosen? Were they random? To answer these questions, we need to compare two verses in Scripture that talk about sin. The first is 1 John, verses three, 1 John 3, verse 4. John says this, Everyone who, breaks, everyone who sin breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. John's defining sin for us here is breaking the law. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. But how far one misses the mark is irrelevant to sin. Whether it's by a meter or a mile, we still miss the mark. You see, according to John, sin is not a measurement of how bad a person is. It is a measurement of how good a person is not. Sin does not comment on how far we miss, but only on the fact that we miss the mark. Has anyone ever missed a flight for a business trip? Yeah, I see a few hands. If you've ever missed a flight on a business trip, you've missed your flight. Whether you've missed that flight by a minute or an hour, it is irrelevant to the fact that you missed it. If sin is to miss the mark, and sin is this relative word, relative to the mark that's been missed, John in this passage is reminding us that the mark we miss because of sin is the law. The second passage comes from Paul in Romans, Romans 3.23. We know this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standard against which we are measured in this passage is the glory of God. When we compare these two statements, John says that the target we miss is the law of God. Paul says the target we miss is the glory of God. This indicates that there's some correlation between these two. There's a connection between the law of God and the glory of God because they represent the same thing. To understand what, what uh, Paul's talking about in the glory of God, we need to understand more of what uh, Scripture tells us about the glory of God. We see in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. According to John chapter 1, we begin to see that the glory of God is the manifestation of the character of God. Hebrews says a similar thing in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Again, if we go back to John, John chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, What Jesus did here in Cain of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. You see, if we want to know what God is like, we can see it as we look at Jesus. Jesus' life, his ministry, his behavior, his actions, and his reactions portray the moral character of God. And in the same way, the law of God represents the character of God to all humanity. You see, when God said in his law, you shall not steal, it was for one reason. God is not a thief. To break the law would to misrepresent God and distort the character of the one whose image we are designed to function. When God said, you shall not give false testimony, it is because God does not lie. When he said, you shall not commit adultery, it is because God is totally faithful. When God said, you shall not covet, it is because God is not greedy. When he said, you shall not murder, it is because God gives dignity to every human being. When he says, six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, he takes time to explain it. It's because God rested on the seventh day. He did not rest because he was tired, but because his work was finished. The Sabbath is not designed to enable us to get over six days of hard work but that we might rest in the complete sufficiency of God. Finally, when the law states, honor your father and mother, it is because within the Trinity, the son always seeks to please his father. You see, the law is not designed as an arbitrary set of rules or a series of guidelines just to help us to behave, the law is more profound than that, more meaningful for, than that, more full than that. It is the revelation of the character of God. So if the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, then we need to understand the effect of the law. For the effect of the law is to reveal our failure as humans to be able to live out that law. Paul in Romans 7 makes this statement, Romans 7 verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin had. Sorry, let me I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not known what coveting was really, was it for the law, had he not said, you shall not covet. 
He says a similar thing in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, the effect of the law, the law does not make us sinners. It only reveals our sin. It reveals our sinful actions, yes, but even deeper, our sinful attitudes and thoughts. The effect of the law is to make us conscious of our own ability and failure to carry out the law because of something that's wrong with us internally. What was Jesus doing in speaking this way? Why was he giving these examples? Why was he pressing into the people around in this way? We see from God's word that he was driving his listeners and us into a corner where we can only come to one conclusion. This life is impossible to live on our own. Until we arrive at the conclusion that we can't be the person that we were designed to be, we will never discover the full force of the gospel. We will only continue to think of Jesus in terms of dealing with the symptoms of our life. Maybe he can forgive our past sins, but we don't allow him to deal with the root cause of our sinful hearts. The sad part is, if we have a gospel which only deals with the outward actions but not with the cause, then we have no gospel that is different than the old covenant. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant in Christ is the cross of Christ was permanent in its effect. Rather than having to continue on the necessary repetitions of sacrifices of the old covenant, Jesus died once for all. But even that only addresses the symptoms. This now leads us to the most crucial aspect of what Jesus said here today. What did he mean when he said to the law, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them? You see, up until this point, previously there had been a missing element in the revelation of God given to his people. Paul says it was a mystery. But he says with Jesus' arrival, it's no longer a mystery. The mystery has been revealed. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that had been kept hidden for ages and generations has now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen? The mystery, says Paul, which is revealed is Christ Jesus not only did something for us, in which he fulfilled the rituals of the old covenant, but he does something 
in us. Christ living his life in us, he is the hope of glory, the hope of hitting the target that we come short of each day. Jesus does not fulfill the law's example for us. He fills it within us by giving us a transformed heart. We're reminded of this in Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant I make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This new covenant Jesus is talking about will involve a rewriting of the law. Sorry, will not involve a rewriting of the law, but a relocating of the law. Instead of being on tablets of stone, it will be written in the minds and hearts of those who follow him. God in us. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my loss. You see, under the new covenant, our righteousness does not depend on what we do for God, but it depends on what Christ did for us. And by the continued indwelling of his spirit to live out the life Jesus yet died for us, producing the character of Jesus in us. The gospel is this. It involves at its bottom line the restoration of God's character reflected in us as his image bearers, which was lost at the Garden of Eden. The consequence of the fall was death or separation from the life of God. The cause of the restoration of righteousness is now a new life. He who has a son has life. It is the life of God indwelling the human life lived in union together, which is the source of true righteousness. This doesn't mean that perfection is available to us at this instant. The Bible doesn't say that. Rather, it's a process of growth in righteousness. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We who with unveiled faces... All reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God has given us a transformed heart to, to live out this newness of life, to be able to live into this true righteousness. But how do we do it? Are we merely passive observers? where the righteousness of God becomes automatically evident in our lives? No. We are full participants in our growth in righteousness. And Jesus addresses this here in the passage as well. He says, we've sought to understand the demand of righteousness. We've looked at the dynamics of righteousness of what God has done within us. It's equally important for us to look at the third aspect, the discipline of righteousness. We need to go back a few verses and I want to look at the discipline of righteousness in regards to our relationship with others and our relationship with ourselves. First, discipline with others, verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar 
And there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled to them and come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is talking, uh, taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may th- be thrown in the prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. penny. The first discipline of righteous, righteousness when it comes to others and our relationship with others is reconciliation. We need to develop this discipline to reconcile relationships with one another. Where we are actively pursuing the restoration of these broken relationships. This discipline is vital in the ingredient in the growth process of our own righteousness. Duran Gray, a pastor, says it this way. Scripture testifies that Jesus was sent on a mission to reconcile people to God and to one another. We treasure Jesus by treasuring one another. His reference here to treasure is to be more than to be kind. It is to be in such a, a restored, intimate relationship that we are seeking what is best for the other. The second discipline of righteousness comes within ourselves, and we see this in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Jesus isn't talking here literally about mutilating our bodies, but referring to restraint and self-discipline that help us deny the opportunity for sin. You see, discipline is an essential component of true righteousness. The function of discipline is not to create something within us, but to release the life of Jesus that is in us. Paul gave these instructions to the Philippians in chapter 2. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What Jesus is asking for us in regards to perfect righteousness is that it's not our responsibility to work it out in our own holiness, but to work out the consequences of God's working within us. Those of you that know me in any way know that I love to cycle. One of the first questions I asked when uh, moving here to Chicago was, where can I take my bike? And even as I moved here in February, I asked uh, my host home, can I bring my bike with me? So I love to cycle. I've always been enamored with cycling. I've always liked to watch it, whether it was watching the Tour de France growing up or the early spring classics. 
that take place. And about a half dozen years ago, I bought my first bike and really started getting into cycling. The exciting thing that happened was that I would go out and ride. I would come back after an hour totally excited and totally exhausted. And I had only put in maybe 15 miles. I remember pulling into my driveway, panting for water because I chose to ride in the middle of the summer day. My legs were aching. I was ready for a nap. And my wife would laugh at me. I was so undisciplined at that point. I hadn't put in uh, the understanding of, of what it meant to work that out. Now you look at me six years later and I get annoyed that I have to get dressed for anything under 25 miles because at that point I'm just feeling warmed up. If you hear things I've gotten to do, I've gotten to, to, to ride century rides that are over 100 miles. I've ridden in gravel races. I've gone backpacking for multiple days during a week. All of that because I've been disciplined to ride continually whether in good weather or in bad weather, whether when it's hot or when it's cold. I ride year-round, so much so that I even bought a trainer that my bike sits on in the winter so I can ride in my basement in place. So it is with us in our spiritual growth and righteousness as well. God's work of sanctifying us is continual and ongoing and allows us to produce the ever-growing fruit of God's righteousness internally that is exhibited externally in our lives. You see, we'll never meet a lazy, undisciplined, but effective Christian. The two are contradictory. Discipline is not the cause of righteousness like the Pharisees thought, but it is the means by which the righteousness that God has done within us is expressed. The role of Christ in the Christian involves his fulfilling the righteous demands the law makes upon us. Jesus is indispensable to our righteousness. But what he has already done in us as believers is given expression through our disciplined, humble dependence upon him and obedience to him each day. What Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 5 is if we remove any ingredient from that process, we are left with the empty shell of legalism. Jesus' challenge to us here in Matthew chapter 5 is not to exert self-righteousness but to live out his perfect righteousness, which he has given us through the transformed heart and the power of the Holy Spirit in us each day. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you and we thank you for these challenging words. We thank you for these challenging words that make us think, make us think deeply about what you have done and what you are doing. 
and remind us of our total dependence upon you each day. Lord, the bar you set for, you set for us is high. Perfect righteousness. But we are thankful that your Son has done that within us. And your Spirit is continually making us more and more like you. Lord, help us live in obedience to you each day. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. We throw ourselves at his mercy in order that we might live for him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's word. Bible, you are sent. Mm-hmm. 